Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny, or maybe not so sunny, shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings-on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts, and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. Hello, it's uh, yet another morning at Cannes, which of course means I'm recording yet another podcast. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm tired. We're nearing the end of the festival. But but with the group that I have here, I am completely rejuvenated with energy. <laughs> so I'm going to ask these guests to introduce themselves. Uh, Miriam. Hi, I'm Miriam Bale. Um, I'm a programmer and sometimes critic. Lovely to have you. Mark. Hi, my name is Mark Ash. I am a uh, contributor of film of artisanal handmade film <laughs> criticism to Film Comment and other fine publications. And drum roll, Kevin. <laughs> Hi, Devika. Um, Kevin B. Lee. I am, well, mainly an academic. I'm a professor at the University of Lugano in Switzerland, which is a position sponsored by the Locarno Film Festival. And uh, besides that, I'm also a filmmaker and video essayist and former critic. Mm. And uh, I mean, you you may have heard Kevin on the podcast before from last year's Locarno Future of Attention talks, but it's nice to have you as a, as a guest. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how attention plays out in a place like Cannes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can sure get into that. So I know that today we, we do have quite a few films to get into, but a theme that we thought um, could bring everything together would be performance because actually there's a lot of, I would say, performance-forward films at Cannes this year, but also um, films that are about acting and performance in many ways. Uh, We already talked about a major one in that category May-December on the last one, which is like all about acting, but there's a a few more, and I think one we should start with is Anatomy of a Fall by Justin Trier. Uh, the French filmmaker, her last film, which was also at Cannes, I believe, was Sybil. Um, and it's getting a lot of buzz um, here as like a strong awards contender. People seem to be liking it a lot. I will share my own thoughts soon. But maybe, Mark, would you tell us what the film is about? The film uh, opens with her, uh, with this novelist being interviewed by some journalist or grad student at um, at her home in uh outside of uh Grenoble. 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 Yeah. Grenoble. Grenoble. And uh <laughs> Don't she, try to out French the French, you know? <laughs> you, you, you can't you can't kid a her. At the uh she's uh, a German novelist who lives in France with her French husband is being interviewed by a French um journalist and they're conducting they're conducting the interview in English because it's uh common ground and it's sort of an interesting meta commentary on the sort of seeing it in the can environment where um english all, competes with french at times as the sort of common language Lingua for everyone Franca. even and yeah and so and so already we're in this mode of um of language and of language and power and uh the sort of subtleties of inter of 
I guess you might call it a status exercise uh, since we're using since we're talking about performance. And then uh, and that's sort of the, and then that's sort of the overture of the film, which concludes when Sandra's husband uh, falls off the roof. <laughs> or did he fall? Uh, to, or as um, well, the interview concludes when uh, he let's not reveal it, but he cuts the interview off with a very, very um, passive aggressive gesture <laughs> involving a uh, 50, 50 cents uh, pimp. Yes, <laughs> and but he's eventually found. He is eventually found yeah. on the ground, and then the question, which is the question we've been asking since uh, Richard and Linda Thompson's shoot out the lights, is did he jump or was he pushed? And <laughs> and so the re- and so the major part of the film is I can't be the only one who thought of that. The major part of the film is a trial, and it's a French trial, mm-hmm. which, as we remember from the Goldman case, is very theatrical. People can just interrupt, like. And like much like a podcast, they can just throw it over to somebody, <laughs> throw it over to the other mic at any time. Uh, and so, and so Sandra becomes Sandra, who is not a um, who is who has written uh, uh, often about her life and drawn from her life in the sort of way that like artists do, in a way that is often interpreted by the people around them as callous and exploitative, becomes sort of suspect as somebody who could conceivably have have done this and has to switch back and forth often between French and English in this courtroom setting and her entire scenes are replayed uh dialogues are revisited and her entire um her entire life is sort of put under the microscope because it's ultimately um a question there isn't the forensics are inconclusive and it's really just a question of vibes and her conviction or acquittal will ha- will hinge entirely on whether it, whether the jury thinks that can gets from her performance in this courtroom that she um, that she uh, did it or didn't mm. and that or whether they can sort of, whether her lawyers can convince um, the jury that her husband um, was suicidal um, which and so it, it becomes a very um, not as ambiguous perhaps a film as I would have dreamt mm. yeah I but i i think for a long time i think for a long time it largely is and it plays out in handsome widescreen widescreen over the course of like a number of of days of trial and and interviews and d- conversations really and yeah it becomes sort of a uh it becomes sort of a yeah a, a, an, an exercise in an exercise in um Reading, for reading people forensically, I think is maybe where I would where I would land with that. And Sandra Hüller is um, is a well. This will not come as news to listeners of the Film Comment podcast, but she's a very <laughs> great actor. Yeah, <laughs> she is. She's she's I think one of the greatest actor actors around and at at the festival definitely. Um, but I I really preferred. I preferred her performance in Zone of Interest, which I know you've covered on the podcast. And in that film, so much of her performance is um, is in her body and the way she walks. And there's so much like evil and neuroses conveyed in that. And I, I loved her in Justine Triet's previous film, mm. uh, Sybil, which I think people were mixed on, but I am 100% for. I loved completely. Um, sort of a persona swap film, which um, 
Some Which may. is Miriam's speciality. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I know a little about. Yeah. Um, but she plays a female director, a woman director, and in a wonderful way. And I think there's a the, what's maybe interesting about this film, Anatomy of a Fall, is some of the gender stuff mm. related to creativity because she is a writer and her husband is an academic and um, aspiring writer. And there's a bit of a... Um, F. Scott Zelda Fitzgerald y thing about who owns the material of their life. Um, uh, uh, you know, except he's the Zelda, perhaps. That, mm. um, although, honestly, I mean, I think more like he's the Zelda that couldn't produce. And um, so he, she's borrowed from his work in progress, his outline. And so there's some interesting stuff about that's very contingent on the on 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 the the motive mm. on their like um on whether he both whether it's murder or suicide is this idea of who's the artist and who owns the material and who takes care of the housework and the um and the child care because they have a child who has lost part of his sight and this great dog. Let me say Snoop. that the best thing about the film is the dog. Snoop. Uh, Palm dog by for Snoop. Palm dog for Palm dog for Messi who plays Snoop. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Go yeah. to dog. Great. Absolutely phenomenal dog performance and hugely thematically important. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I, so that's uh, that's what I have to say about this film. It's a yeah. great dog. <laughs> Wonderful dog, because I was very disappointed in it. Honestly, yeah. um, I did like her previous film, and I loved this film. Was very it, it, for me. It was a little too actorly, too metaphorical. Mm. The um, the her her lawyer is played by Swan Arlo, who I really love as a performer, but who seemed miscast in this. Like I couldn't. He seemed too much of an actor. He was really wonderful in a previous film. Um, I want to talk about. Uh, Duras? I don't know if you oh, yeah, yeah, he was yeah, yeah. he's in that. That's he's right. so good in that. And I, so I really like him, but I I I was unfortunately I, I heard it described by someone, I wish I could remember to credit, but it's just like um like like quality TV. No, I I I'm glad, Miriam, you said that because I went into it hearing a lot of raves and then I was a little disappointed because I think it's solid. You know, it is solid. And I don't know if I can say more. And I think it is very actorly and, God, someone needs... I need to figure out the French courts are really like this because, yeah, after the Goldman case. But even the Goldman case is a little... is more restrained than this one. I mean, this one seems really... Uh, theatrical is even an understatement. There's something almost cartoonish uh, about some of the attorneys, like, yeah. performances and spiels. But also, you know, the film doesn't really have any big ideas, you it, know? No. I mean, it has some small ideas about, again, about, like, gender and art and labor. But, I mean, it, I mean, it does, I mean, and it has a, like, I, I, yeah, and it has a bit of a true crimey, but maybe not enough, like the Todd Haynes or something, yeah. where it goes, like, fully on into these kind of disreputable genres. This one stays kind of quality in a way that Sybil really wasn't. Sybil right. was like, like Sybil was trashy in the best right. way. And the pro there's a prologue like, you know, before the credits, which I think is just directed and edited 
very well and is cheeky and dark. And I thought that would set the tone for the film. I got kind of excited about it. And even the credit sequence with old pictures of Sandra Hewler and, you know, her husband in the film, there's something very playful about it. But then the film becomes pretty staid. And, you know, not every film needs to have big ideas, but... First of all, the film is quite long. It is set in a courtroom. It is gesturing at all the things that Miriam is talking about, art and gender. Um, and I just kept waiting for something that would push it into the realm of, you know, some kind of existential or philosophical, like, arena. And ultimately, it stayed within the bounds of, you know, questions of autofiction and questions of subjectivity, which... I already expect from this genre. And of course, it's not like just a copy of a courtroom film, but I don't think it necessarily reinvents that format as much as I would have liked. I will say, I mean, Sandra Hewler, great. Snoop, great. The actor who plays the kid, Daniel, I thought was quite lovely too. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. He's we can't. A kid. We're not going to. We're not going <laughs> to say. Gonna we're not. We're not going to come on this podcast and say I'm that not. some child is a shit actor. I'm, I'm like <laughs> the lawyers in the courtroom. I'm like this child is a beautiful performer. <laughs> Would you like to say anything? I, I will say he does feel like a child actor, though, <laughs> and I prefer. And actually, this Ooh. is a good transition because yeah. oh, I, I've got a transition um, mm. because uh, there is a new Wes Anderson. And honest, and this is also a lot about actors. So it's called Asteroid City. And two of the performers, uh, or four of the performers that I found the most interesting um, in this Wes Anderson was, first of all, Tom Hanks, which was really surprising because he wasn't doing the Wes the, Anderson thing. Exactly. But yeah. also the kids, because like, they have these three girls who all think they're witches and they were just wild. And that Wes Anderson... I I'm I'm a fan. I'm mm. I'm in the tank for Wes Anderson, but I don't like his animation because he has too much control. And when he has something that pushes against that control, and those little girls, those witches, I, let's just say I prefer the witches to the to the um, half-sided boy in Anatomy of a Fall. <laughs> <laughs> the weird sisters. Uh, uh, no, I. So let's get into Asteroid City quickly. So. Um, God, I, I don't know how to like describe the plot of the film, but it's sort of like a... They've all seen the preview. Uh, yeah, everyone's seen the trailer and like the marketing campaign that was the TikTok or whatever Instagram trend of people doing AI recreations of their lives, uh, according to the Wes Anderson template. But basically, in, in very brief, the film is about a play about this place in you know in a dystopian future called asteroid city where a meteor once struck and it's sort of like a really i don't know sparse amusement park or not amusement park like a tourist destination and a group of families gather there with their kids for like an award ceremony for like really bright young scientific minds um and I don't know. I, I don't know how to how much to stray away from spoilers, but there is some extraterrestrial activity. Yeah, let's just say it's a pastel nope. <laughs> <laughs> Very well done, Miriam. Yes, okay. but I mean, even though I feel I don't like this film, so and I love nope, so I I, I resent them being spoken of in the same you know same breath. Um, and so it kind of switches a little bit between the framing narrative of the play and then this like in which is in black and white and this inside narrative of uh, the pastel nope, which is obviously in color. And I 
There are films of Wes Anderson that I love and films that I feel really let down by. I'm not like a fan, but neither a hater. You know, there are some films I've really been moved by. I found this to be boring, first of all, which isn't always the case with this films, you know, even the ones I haven't liked, I haven't found to be boring. I thought this was boring, especially because of how it's so convoluted that it just removed me from emotional involvement. Mm -hmm. uh, it just snaps back and forth between the storylines and just stuffed to the brim with actors and cameos. And I, I didn't have any breathing space to feel. Yes, absolutely. You know? No, I, I agree completely, but I also liked it. <laughs> and I, and um, I, 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 I like Wes Anderson best when he's um, funny and sad. I think a lot of people just look at the at the production design and that's what they think of but really what identifies him to me is this emotional Melancholy. tone yeah this funny mixture of funny and sad and I didn't think this one was funny or sad and I said that to a group of people and they thought it was incredibly sad but really it's it's not emotionally sad it's it's existentially sad it really feels like it it feels like it's a weird weird ass film and I it was the only boo that I've heard and honestly this whole can it's been everything's okay right like I, there's nothing I love there's not a lot of like love it or hate it kind of things um which I just found out in Britain they call Marmite did you know that I just found out that's a Marmite thing a Marmite reaction um but anyway <laughs> there have been no Marmite films um and uh and but this one sort of was um, uh, or this uh, the person next to me was French and immediately said, said, it's the worst film in the festival. No. And, and, and I was just like and he said, no, it's not very good. And there was a boo. So I think it was it's it's really weird. And I like that. Um, and I I feel like it's a film that is on the verge there were elements I feel like whatever film he makes next is going to be great and maybe that sounds like I'm really in the tank <laughs> but it feels it feels like a film kind of on the verge of like a breakdown or a breakthrough <laughs> like like there's a musical scene there's just like getting into this whole yeah. other thing like and I feel like if he just kind of goes to the next level and so I I, I enjoyed it yeah. but I'm I'm a fan I I think that you know, what you said, it's it's existentially sad, not emotionally sad. I think that's correct, but even the existential melancholy found lacking to me. I think partly because we were talking about actors and performance. They don't feel like characters. They felt like actors. And I think to, for me to feel the existential implications of dystopia, which is kind of what this film is about, I need to pe feel like people are experiencing the effects of that. And... The cast also feels that they were cast because they were actors he wanted to work with rather than a realistic group of people, you know, who would be necessarily suffering this particular situation. I mean, personally, also, like, the the, the five, like, brainiest students, I assume from all of America, brainiest, like, scientists, four of them are white and one is Asian. I mean, that is just not how... <laughs> you know, American, like, science olympiads and uh, spelling bees and all of that plays out anymore, you know? I mean, it was just so white. And there's that one Chinese family and then a couple of characters of, you know, there's, like, Jeffrey Wright plays, like, a soldier that even... 
I mean, it's it feels kind of very banal to say like, oh, Wes Anderson's films, they're so white. And it's not something I necessarily would apply to all his films. But here I was like, it's hard for me to believe the setting and the existential stakes of the setting because of this. But then I know it's also like a movie within a play. So there's so much, it's not supposed to be realistic. But then where is the point where I feel something, you know? Um. Yeah, well... Um, all of that is fair, but I will say, like, if we're talking about performance, um, the other performance that I found moving was Jason Schwartzman. And I feel like there's a lot of, um, it was hard not to think about like Rushmore when you watch it, because I mean, I guess he was in that terrible movie where the Darjeeling limited, sorry. So that was the one I'm not a fan of, but that was, but to have him star, it's not hard not to think about Rushmore. And I know we there's often the thought that like his that Wes Anderson's more emotional films had a lot to do with Owen Wilson co-writing. And I think that's true. But also so much to do with Jason Schwartzman, I realize from this. How many of Jason Schwartzman's relatives has Wes Anderson killed off in his films over the years? Oh, does he kill them? Well, I mean, there he's always an or an orphaned or widowed or or grieving and <laughs> oh yeah that's true he lo- i mean wes anderson loves orphans uh i think it's partly like a literary conceit right. like this idea of like i am uh i am a dec- I, 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 because he loves like he loves like resourceful um melancholy children so they, they are they he has a lot of D- dickensian orphans like like max fisher almost kind of who uh and or he has and in this one, Jason Schwartzman is old enough now that he can have lost a wife instead of um, a parent mm-hmm. and be sort of look and be sort of in the position of having to try to hold it together. So he's sort of become, um, I guess, like Seymour, Cass- Seymour Cassell in, uh, in Rushmore. And I think with always with Anderson, there is um, this sense of families that are incomplete and striving to like sort of like looking looking backwards into uh looking backwards to like a moment uh when they where they were all still together because right. he's very he's very fussy and the symmetry the symmetry of a nuclear family is a very powerful thing it's a very powerful like enclosure yeah and anderson is always um trying to close the circuit yeah um, I do want, I, I want to segue to another film that is actually I realize like a good companion because it has framing narratives and it's about acting, but it made me feel like it was like trying to make me feel too much. <laughs> and that's Close Your Eyes by Victor Erice, the director's first film in 30 years and only third full length feature ever. So a pretty big deal. And Kevin, why don't you, I know you saw it and I think you're a fan. So why don't you describe it and kind of lead us into that? Well, okay, I can try because it is over a three hour film and it is made in a certain style that, uh, well, one could maybe uh, critically call soporific, but that would be a bit disrespectful for someone with such an amazing, um, uh, how you say, um, just an amazing uh, aura as Victor Ice, and it is only his fourth film. Um, he really has generated a kind of mystique about him because he's really the opposite of someone like Wes Anderson when it comes to career output. Yeah. It's only his, uh, 
you know, fourth film, and the last one was over 30 years ago, I think. Yeah, but of third course, feature, I believe. Yeah, it's third feature, correct. Uh, but of course, films like Spirit of the Beehive and The Queen's Tree's Son are all-time classics and really held in the canon of the Spanish cinema. So um, this film, I have to say, it's, it's a bit hard for me to fully account for, uh, because there were times where I nodded off. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I took a I'll couple just be, of long blinks. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Just, <laughs> I'll just be honest about it. But um, yeah, but I have to think also about the film's relationship to time and temporality. It's very much uh, a film that seems to be in a long process of uh, grieving or bidding farewell to things, uh, things of the past, uh, to things that, were, that have been held dear, especially with regards to cinema and one's life. So just to get to the summary part, I mean, just it starts... Uh, with a scene in which a anarchist uh, exiled from France is asking a man to go search for his missing daughter who uh, he left back in China. Um, but then it quickly, and I guess this might be a spoiler, but it quickly... It's impossible is, to talk about the film without yeah, exactly. revealing this. So listeners, <laughs> just pause here and like skip ahead 10 minutes if you feel like you don't want to hear this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's revealed that this is actually a film uh, within a film, uh, a film that has not been completed because the actor who was playing the, the person tasked to find the missing daughter um, died um, under mysterious circumstances. And the director never recovered from this because he was very good friends. Um, and then I find it really interesting how the film kind of changes texture because it goes from this um, luminous celluloid presentation of the film within a film and to a period this, like a lush yeah, period mise-en-scene exactly yeah. to uh rather like straight hard um digital video uh shot of uh of a contemporary city and then also this television interview um in which the the director um talks about this in incomplete production and then that sets off this long uh meandering journey uh that eventually leads to uh, the, the recovery of some missing footage. Uh, along the way, we visit a um, this derelict uh, archive of, of celluloid reels, which is something I, I feel like I see almost every film festival has at least one film that's, you know, mourning these, uh, these derelict, neglected, forgotten, you know, canisters of cinematic legacy. Um, I mean, I'm a cinephile as much as the next person, but I feel like scenes like that need to do something more than just kind of enact this grieving. And it's always middle-aged men or elderly men who are, who are in this, uh, you know, this, this, this the wistful, location. Yeah. Um, w the scene that I liked a lot um, in the middle, although I couldn't tell you how we get there, is um, this people gathered around a table um, spontaneously ent entering this um, sing-along of uh, a Spanish, I think it's a Spanish uh, adaptation of a song from Rio Bravo, mm -hmm. uh, the song My Rifle, My Pony, and Me that Dean Martin sings in that film. So it's very much a, a moment of cinephile recollection um, translated into a different language, which I found really fascinating. Was it? It was in English. It was in English. Oh, it was in English. Yeah, in English. Yeah. Okay, and, it's, and, it's so, it and it's so Hoxian because it is just a bunch of like, people sitting around like having yeah. experience yeah, and camaraderie exactly. in the middle of this in the middle of this ostensibly plot driven 
film. Yeah, I think I was reading the subtitles. I was fascinated by it, that there were Span- there were Spanish translations to this uh, to this uh, <laughs> or or, or something. I don't know. Like, I remember. Yeah, it, or, or French translation. Um, but yeah, exactly. It it is like hearkening to a past era of cinema, nineteen um, fifties, um, late Hollywood. This feeling of just you know people just kind of hanging out that you see in in Rio Bravo. And the um, film is set in twenty two. The the con- so called contemporary parts are set in set in twenty twelve. I believe that's what the like on screen text said when we switched to the digital. So that also I think is interesting. Like it's a very specific moment to set it in. It's about you know twelve years before now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but um, just this feeling of um, wanting to achieve this moment where time kind of stands still and the non-narrative supplants the narrative. Um, and uh, yeah, and it also reminded me, speaking of you know early 2010s, it reminded me of the scene at the beginning of Uncle Boon Me by Apichet Pong, where it uh, you know, starts off with people just hanging out around the table. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it does uh, have its moments, and it does lead to a very, very powerful... Uh, almost overpowering um, finale, um, but maybe I, I won't say more because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it, it was really like literally staring at me and I didn't know quite what to make of that. So I'm curious, like Mark Devica, what you think? You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I think that the ending scene without um without without describing it um it does harken back quite explicitly to spirit of the beehive in certain ways um you'll know it when you see it and I think that that sense of um a closed parenthesis is so powerful um because it has been um and also we should say that um uh, Anna Torrent who plays the little girl in Spirit of the Beehive, um, returns. I actually don't know. Uh, I'm not particularly well-versed in Spanish cinema, so I don't know whether she's been working this whole time or if she's re- or if she just went on to like become a normal person and has been called back. She's, and- she's been on and off. She had some uh, films like Cria Cuervos and uh, Tesis in the 90s, so she's, yeah, she's, she's been active. Mm-hmm. But but it's, I think this is like well when would she have worked with Arisa, with Arisa, with Arisa again, um, so the, it is sort of and the, the the opening scene is fascinating because like the first shot of the film is this beautiful brick not brick not brick stone mansion set back through a gate surrounded by like beautiful trees and it's verdant and it's like the house it's like a house like in Spirit of the Beehive a house like in El Sur, and you immediately feel that you're back in this vintage, um, in this vintage uh, moment which is something that you've been looking forward to for so much because this is only the fourth film he's ever made and probably the last, especially once you see it. And then he pulls you out of that into, into the modern world and, um, and sets you on these sort of, through these sort of like long passages of even the, of just this retired filmmaker um, just living his life um, with only trace things like the rifle, my pony and my me and me sing along um 
that are sort of trace memories of a li- of a life that used to be in film and and isn't really anymore. And it does make you think a lot about well, well, so well that makes sense then that he's only made four films because clearly he's uh, also the the sheer volume of different production company and funding body logos at the beginning of this film it rivals Eureka. At a certain point, I was just like Jesus. If I'd known he was that hard up, he should have asked me. I would have thrown in a couple hundred bucks. Clearly, like. People like like people must have been contributing like double figures at a certain point. There's just so because it doesn't. It, I mean, the money's all there on the screen, but there's not a lot of it. I wonder if it's a situation. I think it might be similar with Eureka, where it's not so much about the amount of money, but just the the duration of the production, and that after a certain time passes, uh, that money dries up, and you need someone else. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't know how exactly how long this film took to make, but the film itself just seems to be resisting closure. Like, it just wants to yeah. keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think the the film is about the magic of cinema, uh, you know, at, at its core. And I think sometimes that works very beautifully and sometimes that does tip into, like when, Kevin, you were describing the scene with the archives, there are other moments where it tips into something a bit saccharine and... Um, you know, familiar. I mean, maybe he's making been making this film for a long time, so some parts feel dated and maybe were like conceived and even produced, you know, a while ago. But that work, the ending didn't quite work for me. I I won't reveal what it is, but again, because now it seems that kind of nostalgia seems so trite to me. You know, I will say though, I think. Even like there's a lot that's familiar in this film that feels easy in a way, emotionally easy. But the bloat of the film, so to speak, like everything is just very slow. Mm. There's something very beautiful about that and rich about that. You know, all the lead character's progression through the various vignettes, through various spaces, there's something very slow because everyone seems sort of laden with melancholy. And so the film allows you to really dwell in their space, time, in their emotional space. And I just was struck by the fact that there's a lot of long films here and they all are long for various reasons. There's a lot going on or there's like a formal kind of, there's a formalism that demands duration. Here, I don't know, it's 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 not very formalist. It's not super packed with plot, even though a lot of stuff happens. But there is a kind of... Um, you know, the, a lot of these characters are dealing with the passing of time, of age, of recovering what is lost. And I think the film really forces you to be with them and feel the passing of each minute and thinking, like, and how that makes you think about how, you know, you can't recover those minutes, which I found quite effective. Yeah, I part, part of me wants to agree with you. And at sometimes I do feel that, especially that, that singing part. Other times, well, maybe it's the the cinematic language because there's a lot of this televisual shot, reverse shot that to me just looks uh, visually flat. And it in some ways kind of undermines that feeling of an extended moment that you can really kind of um, uh, inhabit. Um, But I I agree with you. Like I do feel like what makes a festival great is the chance that you can actually experience cinematic time you know, a time that exists outside of Netflix time, per se, or social media time. Um, and even, like, great films that I've, I've seen, like the Joanna Arno film, whose title is so long that I, 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 can't, I won't dare, the like... feeling that the time for doing something has passed. This is why you're so good at your job, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is uh, a brilliant film. 
Um, but still, it's it's operating in a temporal register that you know is very much of its time. Yeah. But I do miss films that um, are able to earn their time at a more broader scale, and I feel like this film is is definitely going for it. I just feel like it doesn't quite get there. I, I'm assuming everyone saw the Scorsese. I would love to hear your thoughts on it, and w- with respect to what we were just talking about, too, yeah. like duration. Yeah. And I'll, I'll also offer something, because for me, it's also this question that if we can sort of connect dots between Close Your Eyes, Asteroid City, and Kozo uh, Thar Moon. I've only seen Close Your Eyes, yeah. but this question of like, how are these films making sense of the 20th century is uh, something. Yeah, because yeah, mm. it's like, because mm. uh, Close Your Eyes, I, I feel it's very much... Um, yeah, it's this funeral for a whole 20th century experience of time and the uh, the medium that we use to experience time, which is uh, celluloid-based cinema. Um, I've heard... Uh, there's, there's an interesting um, writing by Vadim Rizov, who's a, a friend of the podcast, about Asteroid City, um, where he defended it as part of an emerging project by uh, Wes Anderson to make sense of the 20th century in, insofar as it informs the present, which I found an intriguing thesis. Oh, 100% but I, disagree. <laughs> I'm just giving it it's so like, much more credit. It's like Gen X nostalgia for a certain time period. That that I, I don't know if that flies, but yeah. good for Vadim. What, mm-hmm. what do you think about Close of the Flower Moon in terms of being a, a, a revisitation of the 20th century to reflect on its impact on the present day? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And especially, um, I, I think that, uh, I think that, I mean, it's very, um, about America in the same way that, um, the sweet East is very much about America and they both are using these like intertitles, like the, you know, silent film, yeah, yeah, silent film, like, like, uh, so really about, cinema and the 20th century. Um, But I I thought it was also interesting because um, related to uh, the Hawks, um, I thought... um, I thought he would lean into a Western with this film and was a little worried about that. Um, uh, Scorsese, you know, as, you know, the ultimate classic American film fan or the ultimate classic film fan. And it wasn't a Western at all. It was really, like, Goodfellas redone a, and a, a crime or mafia thriller where the mafia is white settlers. Yeah, and it was a, it was very much that plot. Um, I was very mixed on it. I was I was very disappointed. I originally said it was my second least favorite Scorsese, um, with the Aviator being number one. But <laughs> but certain things have come back to me having to do with Lily Gladstone's performance, and there's also this sort of like noir melodrama-ish thing with her relationship but for me the big weakness is is Leonardo DiCaprio especially when when we're talking back to performance like compared to Lily Gladstone Jesse Plemons and Robert De Niro like I just don't think he has the chops well he is very actorly and he feels like he's playing a role he's played many times before and I think some in some ways that works in favor of the film because I think it's recalling genre frameworks that Scorsese has dealt with, but then placing them within this very grand historical framework. But I 
do at other times I don't think it works just because yeah the other actors sort of blow him out the water even Robert De Niro I think is so good so and is good. playing a type he I don't think I've seen him play before you know it's um, a little bit similar to Goodfellas is but but it's it's very different but, he, but, but you're but right it's very De Niro American. in Goodfellas less- is like more closer to the Leo character here you know oh I think that's more Ray, Ray Liotta like, I think he's doing the okay, radio. Okay, maybe, yeah. But, but, Leo but, is also doing something that he did in Gangs of New York, which is look like conspicuously tryhard next to uh, an established, great, serious actor who is sort of cast as, like, the father figure that he is yeah. perpetually trying to um, to live up to. And I think, and, and, and DiCaprio is such a, such a tryhard actor. And I mean this in a non-pejorative, parentheses, non-pejorative. He, he, he is so... His exertions are so are so visible. He's always he's um he's got a big melon head that he squints up. And, yeah, no, the, the, you, and you, he's, you can you, see the strain on you can his see, face. On, literally, uh, yeah. literally, you can see the strain on his face. Exactly, and so he's and so even though he's um, a middle aged man, he is all there's always there's something sort of. Um, boyish and aspirational um that scorsese has used um i think strategically in both the, both this and gangs of new york to sort of um show how um show how somebody is indoctrinated into um an existing structure of power and sort of seeks the approval of um seeks the approval of this and rather than like rather than go his own way and try to like and choose um and choose to and choose another possibility of love or of um, of independence that has been that somebody else offers to him. My one big problem, which I already said on the previous podcast, was that I just couldn't understand why someone like Lily Gladstone's character would fall for someone like Leo Leonardo no. DiCaprio's character. And I mean, that's me being a little bit flippant, but it really actually took me out of the film. Well, it's also because I mean, the love story is lacking like credibility in part because well, that's I mean, I like that. I love this love story where they actually I did buy that they loved each other and there Mm. was this like he was yet he was poisoning her sorry spoiler but like there is um and that reminded me of these noir melodramas that Mm. I love and there are a lot of women who are attracted to these like terrible (laughs) men and really dumb men in those movies there's this idea that it's his face that she's attracted to and I don't know I I don't know it was hard to it was it's hard to I I, I don't know if he's if 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 that was really credible and try hard is exactly right like he's like straining it's like when in an actor when in a comedy an actor's like straining for the jokes he's like straining yeah. to play dumb and and, so, and it works in like once upon a time in in Hollywood and in um and in uh, Wolf of Wall Street it, it totally works that like overacting performance but in this i just kept thinking i went down this like this like YouTube hole recently of like um, Don Rickles and the funniest Robert De Niro's ever been is in this like roast of Don Rickles and he and Scorsese are saying are saying like you know we made eight films together over 20 years put everything we had in them then we made one film with you Don Rickles Casino never worked together again <laughs> and then De Niro says yeah Leonardo DiCaprio says thanks a lot Don <laughs> <laughs> and I kept 
thinking of that divide in Scorsese's mm. career. Yeah. And in here, we see them together. Yeah. And you can't help but compare. So I do want to come back to Kevin's question about like the film's relationship to the 20th century and all of these films. And also because I think that's a good segue to the next film we wanted to talk about, which is Fallen Leaves by Corus Maki. Because... When we talk about the Wes Anderson, the nostalgia is a big aspect of it. In in this film, it's a little different in Asteroid City because there is this futurism as well. So I think the nostalgia plays out a bit differently. But nostalgia is so embedded in his style and approach to even the present. And then you have what I was struck by, you know, the Scorsese. There is an element of nostalgia, like you were saying, Miriam, these silent film intertitles. There's a lot of careful fetishistic recollection of old-timey ways of telling stories so there's definitely that but there is also just you know the past was horrible there is also just this very naked and raw um confrontation with the past which says terrible things happened and so alongside these very um you know I don't know, very, I, I don't want to say cutesy, but th- these very kind of appealing little gestures to past, you know, forms. There is also this idea that we're living on the foundation of a really cruel history. So it, it there's an interesting kind of play with nostalgia, but also, you know, the whatever the opposite of that is. And then... I think Chorus Maki is such an interesting case. And, you know, people often like talk about him in the same breath as Wes Anderson, which is, ugh, how dare they? But Chorus Maki kind of, I loved Fallen Leaves, but everyone rightfully is saying, well, he's made the same film before, right? Well, and that's what did. makes it good. Hmm. Well, I think that maybe we should talk about like, the role of like how he approaches time and history, like the time in his films feels stalled right like all his films even though i mean they're pre- quite contemporary in the sense that this film there's like news about the war in ukraine russia's war in ukraine mm-hmm. like as oh, a const- constant soundtrack his mm-hmm. films are about immigration but they also seem to be in this quaint time and even when people have cell phones you kind of forget they do yeah and you yeah. wonder why that's even there like it could have worked just fine with rotary phones i think and if yeah, really, if it wasn't for those um, radio reports, which it was also kind of funny because it's playing on these like mid twentieth century uh, transistor style radios, which who is um, listening? Who's to listening to anymore? News yeah. on that. Yeah. And if it wasn't for that, you, this film could very well have taken place thirty years ago, and it looks and feels like um, a vintage late eighties, early nineties Karasmaki film. Well, that's what's so wonderful about it. I think is that like people don't. People don't. People wear clothes from thirty years ago. People have objects in their house that they inherited from their parents. People base their lives around rituals that were, um, that were zeitgeisty when they were young and forming themselves, and then they persist in this way of living. Um, and I think such this is such a wonderful film in part because it is some. I, I was glib about like he's made this film before, and that's what makes it good. Mm. But thinking that because it's a love story between two working class people who sort of go to get up in the morning, go to work at their at their jobs. Um, she works at a supermarket. He works in some kind of construction job. And then they go home and then they have nothing to do at home because they don't stay in and watch television, um, which is maybe the one anachronistic thing about this. Which, <laughs> like that is the one really persuasive modern ritual that everyone's adopted. They go to a bar and they sit and they drink their beer and they listen to a band, listen to music 
and they make eye contact, and then they have this bond without saying much to each other. And it's very similar to Shadows in Paradise, which is his big breakthrough. I think the actors are cast for their visual similarities to the stars yeah. of Shadows in Paradise. And and I think it's this really powerful um, reminder that people still live in ways that time ignores and hmm. forget that like time ignores and, and forgets. And I think that because he's making films about, um, about people who are, and he's very explicit about the fact that like she gets, um, she's, she gets fired from the supermarket because she brings home expired food and the security mm -hmm. guard narks on her and, um, and bosses are, and the sort of and the bosses and the cops are always out to get them, and it's only by standing up for each other as working as like working people and being yeah. sort of deadpan about it that they can um, have any kind of like power and solidarity and and yeah. friendship at work. And so mm -hmm. I think that this idea that there is that there are that there are people living unfashionably is um, is both like a really nice aesthetic. Um, and philosophical thing, but also a very much a political project. Yeah, I, I really like that you tie this um, this aesthetic, which feels very comforting and very nostalgic and very pleasant. It was probably the most entertaining film I've seen here, and the audience was really into it, um, that it does have this political substance to it. Because at, at times I was kind of wondering, why are we hearing these uh, radio reports about the Ukraine war when it that, that just feels like kind of opportunity? I think that doesn't work. But maybe... I yeah, also, but, he got... He, it, Finland does share yes. <laughs> a land border with Russia who has invaded them before and are, were in the process of joining NATO when this right. movie was made. So the context there is very much that like... Yeah, and I like that you bring up this um, this organizing moment in the supermarket yeah. as an example of ground level, you know, very materialistic, very tactile political organization as if to say like, okay, these reports that we're hearing over the radio and there's this moment where um, the the... the the lead um, female character just expresses total uh, helplessness and frustration. Like, you know, yeah. this, this just feels so much bigger than me. And then the, I feel like the film with its very um, tactile and loving celebration of analog things like going to the movie theater, listening to old records, exchanging and, numbers on scraps of yeah. paper that are very prone to fluttering away. Yeah. Going to karaoke where like people sing modern, people sing like modern punk songs and also like old, like romantic nationalist, like I'm sorry. It's just like saying this old school way of life that you described really well is might be our salvation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's, I would go so far as to say like he it might be our salvation because I think I think he is also critical of the ways in which we of of like uh, these settings are not all very romantic you know like they are being traversed and occupied by people who have no money and no other means of you know filling their lives with meaning and enrichment so there is this melancholy but that's what I, I like like both of you just said there is a real political commitment in all his films and it's not showy it's not grandiose but it's clear that his way of looking at the world is political right is inescapably political I don't I loved this film I don't like it as much as like the immigrant films I like them more because I think the politics are more pronounced and sort of thematized and in this they are a little bit in the background I don't think the radio broadcasts work even though I, I get the point but I think that it does come off a little bit like a flourish a nod to the events of today but the real political commitment comes through in his portrayal of the gig economy I mean it's so 
specific and moving. I mean, the there's a kind of emptiness to their lives mm. that is very, very moving. Mm. And like, as Mark described it, it's an emptiness that is imposed by their material circumstances. Mm. And the film is very romantic. I think some people maybe even, you know, may... may um, not like may not love the film because of that like i think for some people that's the bone of contention that it gets really too whimsical but this is similar to how i feel about a lot of petzold's films whose style is very different but i think this is an affinity between you know some of korosmaki's and petzold's film films which is like taking these lives these stories that are just confined and drained of meaning and beauty by capitalism, right? These lives are drably capitalistic where there is, seems to be no room for magic because you're just trying to survive and then allowing them to experience grand romanticism in their own little ways, the, mm. the whimsies of fate and, you know, mm. the beauties of like, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that were possible in old movies where the world, world seems seem to be speaking to you through signs and in like the capitalist world that we don't have time to look at like what the clouds say or whatever, right? Mm. So I just, I found the romance of this film so like affirming mm. and almost political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all we have is each other, and that's why there's such mm-hmm. so many wonderful films of people going to bars and listening to bands together. And and there's a wonderful scene in this one um, where people from all different ages and generations and walks of life are in this bar together mm-hmm. just listening to this one band. I think one of the extras is um, the director, Juho Kosmonen, who directed Compartment Number 6. But yeah, and I mean, all we have is each other, and that's why he, he did sort of... Um, that's why his sort of brand of working-class populism that sort of began at a time when Finland was much more of an ethnic, mo- ethnic monoculture, was able to accommodate um, migrants in a way that like some more, um, in the way that other populist movements have have struggled with. Um, and I think he's an interest, I mean, I'm interested in seeing, I'm, I'm, it's a shame that we haven't seen the, the Loach film yet because um, working, working class clubs where people sing along to stuff and um, a white working class assimilating uh, immigration is like our, our subjects of, of Loach's films as well. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think all we have is each other is a nice note to end on. Uh, but Miriam, before that, is there anything you wanted to shout out? I know you had some favorites that we didn't get to. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of films that I loved. Um, uh, well, one film that I'll mention that I don't know if anyone else has seen is Benel, um, Benel and Adama. Yeah. The Senegalese film I'm very yeah. curious about it. I thought it was really strong. Um, and it's by a French director, um, Ramada Toulay Sai. And um, it's uh, it's a I, I, I have it's also very romantic. It's um, a film about a sort of like mad love um, between these two characters, Benel and Adama. And it takes place in Senegal. And, um, it's, uh, I just, you know, I, I just, I I thought it was really, um, really probably the most, uh, visually beautiful film that I saw at the film, at the festival. Um, like who was the cinematographer? Um, Amin Barada, who I don't know. And there was a performance by, um, Keddy Main. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Who played Benel and she was so wonderful. Um, and so this was a, this was a bit of a dis- discovery for me. Um, and um, also, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the title, Only the River Flows. 
What is it called? That, that, it's called Only the River Flows. Wonderful movie. Um, a Chinese film that is like a policier detective film um, that somehow is able to be like um, Lynchian, but without trying to be Lynchian, like uh, sort of uh, and quirky without being annoyingly quirky. It's, um, I thought, really charming. And so those were the two big surprises for me at the festival. And um, uh, I hope you you three have a chance to catch them. Yeah, I'm actually really hoping to see the Wei Shijun film in some form soon because I his last film, Striding into the Wind, which was also here at Cannes, I don't remember, with Sidebar, got like just completely overlooked. And I thought that was a wonderful, it was like a Chinese slacker movie oh, cool. about uh, two film school students um, and, you know, they, they're like working on the, they're like sound guys and they're working on the set of... Um, this guy who's desperate to be the next Wong Kar Wai and they go into Mongolia to shoot the film. It's it's really wonderful and like it was unlike anything I'd seen coming out of contemporary Chinese cinema. Oh, so I will definitely seek out Only the River Flows. It's such a pity that there's only so many hours in the day here and so many movies. <laughs> I know, and so many sidebars. Yeah. But that one is, um, it's also, it takes place, part of the, the police's office ends up being like on a stage in a movie theater and it really felt a little even Ravettian. Yeah. So like all of those, you know, um, I, so I'm just curious, did anyone see Le Morfou? Yes. Do you want to talk about it? I think it's really cool that um, at the beginning of um, at the, the, the sort of the overture before opening night, um, after you pick up your badge, um, you can go see um, a four hour ish <laughs> uh, post new wave uh, reflection on uh sexual morals and of like the of like the of the of the 68 generation uh in the Debussy uh before you go and see something far less nutrient rich uh, <laughs> uh for opening night uh last year was the mother and the whore this year it was um Rivette's uh Amor Fu and um just a just a just a great time at the movies uh a great time at the movies uh so toward just absolute that film absolutely like eats itself chews itself up and spits itself back out and takes all these new forms as it goes and feels very like like both 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 exhausted in terms of its portrayal of um like an impasse in power relations um within a relationship but also so formally um like protean it is is it clearly the best film at the festival <laughs> that's so unfair of like of, you're making people compare yeah. compete like, with he, <laughs> it was it, they're playing they played it at the festival because it's so obviously a great movie like whereas like a lot of the stuff that they play at the festival is just because like it's somebody new. won an award like 25 years ago <laughs> did it even play at Cannes when it originally so was premiered that's a good question i don't know i wasn't here <laughs> we know nothing of time before we were born <laughs> okay um i think we'll wrap up there uh, Kevin, did you? I mean, did you want to yeah, shout out one? I mean, or? I'm, I'm really here to talk about this one film that's my favorite, right. which is by Kleber Mendoza Fio. Maybe he goes without. He needs no introduction. It's his new film, Pictures of Ghosts, which somehow is not in any um, of the lineups. It's just a, a can premiere, which shocks me because it's just a, a marvelous, brilliant essay film using um, his own personal archive of films that he's made throughout his career since he was a university student, um, filming in his in his mother's apartment. And it's amazing to see a lot of the locations that he's um, 
he uses in his family home reappear over time. So it's like this weird time travel effect of going like through uh, different eras just for one location. And um, it just it's just a marvel exploration of his hometown of Recife and how cinema becomes a lens for exploring its the political history of uh, the city and as well as Brazil. Um, it has a Tom Anderson Los Angeles plays itself type of vibe, uh, which is you know what I'm all about. But uh, it also has this incredibly poetic moments. Like there's a um, there's a neighborhood dog uh, that uh, appears in his breakthrough film Neighboring Sounds from 2011, and he tells this amazing story about um, the dog died shortly after um, filming wrapped, and then when the film had its television premiere i think shortly after um you could hear the dog barking throughout the entire um community block because it was playing in everyone's tvs (gasps) it is such a that's lovely and that's just one example of just um how he's able to turn archival filmmaking essayistic filmmaking into something that achieves its own poetics with a political like a, a political argument about yeah we're all in this together like how how cinema has a role to play in bringing us together and yet it ends with oh i shouldn't have said it ends it it features one of the saddest most solitary uh scenes i've seen in this festival and it takes place in an uber it's probably the the (laughs) most heartbreaking uber scene i've seen in a movie so um i think i'll leave it there way to sell it yeah i'm so sold Uh, um i think yeah that's okay that's now a great note to end on (laughs) a sad uber um but thank you all this actually was a completely wonderful discussion we started talking with about performance and we've talked about history time (laughs) the 20th century everything so thank you so much and uh godspeed for the last few days of the festival thank you so much the film comment podcast features original music by greg eingy Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.